I am Connor McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and I am immortal. For a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. Give metalurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast to our knowledge dedicated to dissecting and analysing, oh that sounds far too clinical, to enjoying, just just yeah, just in taking a lot of enjoyment from the movie Highlander on a uh, scene by scene, occasionally minute by minute basis. I'm your host Rob Wallace and as always I'm delighted to say I'm joined by my kinsman Mr Rob Daniel. And as always it is a pleasure beyond measure to be here. And I'm also very excited to say that we are joined by Mr. Ian Bird. Hello, hello, thank you for having me back. Well, thank you for coming back. And to start with today, we're going to be looking at the scene between 59 minutes and 12 seconds and one hour, one hour and 40 seconds. We've broken the hour mark. <laughs> we are. <laughs> How long is this film? This film is one hour, I think it feels like a, a swift one hour, 43 minutes. The version I've got all in, including credits, is one hour 55. Oh, wow. Okay, so we are, you are officially at the halfway mark. Yes. We've done half the film. I just lost a fiver. And without uh, without credits, I think it comes in at one hour 52 or something like that. So, yeah, we are... Imagine being able to tell a densely plotted original story in less than two hours. I know. It's always like it's a lost art. <laughs> so we are raiders of the lost art. Dear <laughs> <laughs> God. Uh, I think we've lost Ian. <laughs> I'm sitting here chuckling merrily. Well, the uh, the scene that we are looking at today, um, Connor is brooding in his loft apartment, as he is wont to do. When he is visited, uh, the downstairs shop, Russell Nash Antiques, is visited by Brenda Wyatt, a uh, forensic analyst who's looking for some answers around not only the encounter with the Kurgan the night before. What can you tell me about a seven-foot lunatic hacking away with a broadsword at one o'clock in the morning, New York City, 1985? Not much. But also the ancient Japanese sword, the impossible Japanese sword. Uh, what about a Japanese sword dated 600 BC? The metal in the blade folded 200 times. <laughs> I don't deal in exotic weapons. Which Connor promptly deflects by asking her out to dinner. No, he does not ask her out to dinner. Quite crucially, he invites himself around for dinner. Do you cook? Why? I thought we might have dinner. Did you? Yes. And then we also have a brief scene, uh, we've included it as part of the same same episode, uh, with Moran and Bedso. Will you see what their dinner consists of? Yes. It's somewhat less romantic. <laughs> I don't know. One of them is in a state of déshabillé. So I'm standing there, and there's Brenda. Our little Brenda. So, yeah, we, uh, we go from the previous scene, which ends with... Well, actually, Ian, you had a theory about the previous scene that you shared over Messenger. Um... Do you want to relate that now before you delve into this? Well, this is this is one of those things where you watch the film so many times, you forget almost, obviously it's placed in a deliberate order. So um, this is set immediately after the Kurgan attacks um, the keep. So we've seen Ramirez get killed, but we do not necessarily know whether or not Heather has survived this attack. So she gets hello pretty at the end of the last scene. Hello pretty. That could conceivably be the last time we see Heather. 
So then sort of like doing the transition up through the fish tank to, to Connor brooding, that casts a really deep emotional pall over the rest of the, over his next few scenes, doesn't it? It feels like this is a substantial change in mood for Connor in terms of, at the moment, uh, Heather is possibly alive, possibly dead at whatever point in the past. So it's kind of like this weird emotional moment. And then I was kind of like thinking about this and um, I was listening to your podcast with the guys from the Honeymoon Pod this morning. And the anecdote that Ramirez is telling Heather when they're having a nice evening is basically predicting what is about to happen. That Ramirez is talking about how he was going to swing in and very much in love, going to uh, romance this woman. But the woman's not there when he arrives, so he introduced himself to the young lady who is there, and she was very helpful. I introduced myself to the lady that was there. She was most helpful. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens when the Kurgan shows up looking for Connor. And in the absence of Connor, he avows himself of Ramirez and Heather. Hmm. Kurgan! Ramirez. This is really kind of like a weird, grim note to a weird, grim scene that comes pretty much, we were talking about, exactly halfway through the film. I think the last time I was on, it felt like the mood shifted in the narrative. And I think at this point, it's shifted again towards one of like sadness and loss and threat in a different kind of way to simply being attacked. It, it feels like quite an interesting change in mood here. Yeah, because no, obviously we go from the Kurgan grabbing Heather's throat and the hello pretty. And then we get the kind of, I guess, I'm, I'm going to unfairly call this the boring version of the tank transition. Mm. Yeah. Which all of a sudden we're on the other side of the fish tank, you know, rising up. And Connor is there by the window in his apartment brooding um in front of what i have to say seems a much more convincing backdrop than it was earlier yeah yeah <laughs> but then you see it in a couple of minutes time and suddenly it looks exactly like a backdrop with lights and windows entirely filling uh, the rectangle glass don't they they look it looks so much more like a set but a brilliant set kind of like a rear window set or a rope set rather than um just a, a lame matte painting yeah but i thought that i thought that when you've now seen new york through his window in this scene it's like, well, one, it looks like it's at the right angle because the map paintings in that first scene when we first see Connor's um, apartment seem to be a bit off as if they haven't been moved properly. It's like that the geometrical space doesn't work. <laughs> but the but yeah, I thought this would have last. That's interesting. This is the one time when it actually does look like a real scene out there. I also never noticed that the entire section with... Sean Connery um, is kind of bracketed, or the, um, sorry, the section from when he's on the lake up to now is bracketed by the fish tank. Yes. So you, it's like, that is great, because this is quite a big chunk of time since we've been in the present day. So the last time we were in the present day was 41 minutes 34. It's now 59 minutes 12. So we've flitted back and forth in this film over the times. But then there's this thing just before the midway point where it's like, okay, we have to land everything that's going on now so we can set up the final section of this movie. So we're going to have this big, almost 20-minute segment that's only going to be set back in the Highlands. Um, And it just actually seemed a bit weird to be back in the present day watching this bit. It's like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot that we were doing this as well because I was so immersed in all that stuff with the training and Ramirez and going to the market and all the things that he can't have. 
And it's like, oh yes, there is actually this going on as well. Yeah, I think given, you know, combining sort of that and with what Ian was just saying, the fact that we do see the more brooding, serious, you know, obviously much older version of Connor now does kind of underline that point. You know, the, the passage of time, the tragedy that he's suffered, especially, you know, given given the scene that we've just seen between um, Kurgan, Ramirez and Heather. Yeah, definitely. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's less a cool brooding glare and more just a way downness of him on him, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, that's incredible. So it, it is, it's 20 minutes, is it? He's, you, we've just, you guys have just spent 20 minutes in the past doing flashbacks. Well, it's, it's a hell of a fish tank. Yes, it's, um, it is a very, very deep fish tank, yeah. It's about 18, 18, 19 minutes. It's also a different fish tank, isn't it? Isn't it the fish tank start off being in his sunken lounge? No, uh, no, the fish tank was always there. It's, the, it's the, in the same space? It's in the same space. Ah, excellent. Oh, is he in the, I, I thought it was in a different place to his sunken lounge. Maybe it's just... I thought it was in his, in his sunken lounge sharpening his sword with the fish tank in the background. Oh, no, sorry, no. No, it's not in the sunken lounge. It's... Um, it is just in that main space, yeah, ah. next to the... He has two lounges. He's a... Yes. What a dick. Yuppie scum. <laughs> yes. this, is the, this is the lounge that's next to the raised piano level, because we've all got one of those as well. Oh, God. <laughs> oh God I, w- I want the Kurgan to win now. Yeah. <laughs> there can be only 1%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Kurgan has to flop in this you know, horrible, seedy hotel. Honor is, yeah, oh, this is all right. So we're just rooting for the billionaire again. Okay, right. <laughs> this is Batman. It is Batman. <laughs> well, I say this is Batman, but it's it's the Kurgan who's got the voice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but yes, yeah, so we're also really approaching the end of the flashbacks because we have the flashback that we're going to talk about in the next episode. Then there's the flashback to the most heartbreaking moment of the film, which will be coming up in a few episodes' time. And then I think, yeah, that's it for flashbacks. We're just going to be in the present day. No, we've, we've got one more. Of course, yeah. we do. yes, that's right, yes. You've got Castigear in the Battle on Boston Common. Um, okay, yes, we've got loads of flashbacks, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> is now the right time to say I've only watched this film once? <laughs> um, who is in the picture on Connor's desk? I, I think that is a picture of Connor wearing a hat next to a young Rachel. I've, I tried squinting at it earlier on today, and it looks to me like it's uh, like a late 40s, Indiana Jones-era Connor McLeod with a young girl who I think is Rachel, which seems like a bit of a dead giveaway to have on your desk. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm assuming that, well, that's the thing. I'm assuming he's working on the basis that people aren't going to enter his personal space. Well, you, if you've got an apartment that nice, you don't want people in it. No, oh, God, no. <laughs> Were you going to put that there? Use a fucking coaster. Yes. <laughs> Say it in the voice. Yeah, use a fucking coaster. <laughs> <laughs> You're sick. You are sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then obviously we get the, um, we've got the kind of scordant note taking us between the scenes. And um, and then it gets replaced by the noise of the buzzer. Yes. And that wonderful groan of the, of the lift. Yeah, we've got that, because we've got that nice POV shot of him going down in the, uh, him coming down in the lift. Yeah. I'd like to speak to Russell Nash. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Nash isn't here at the moment. And um, yeah, and obviously um, Brenda's down there with with Rachel, Rachel played by the uh, the late Sheila Gish. Um, and that's the thing, you know, we're now being introduced to probably the person with whom Connor, certainly in the you know the past century, has had the most stable, you know, the most loving relationship. Well, as well, I was really glad to be invited on for these ones to be honest, because I think the relationship with Rachel is. I think I find it really, really emotional. I find it really resonant. It's, it's something very touching about their two relationships uh, um, together. It, it's kind of it feels more mature. It feels more sad. I, I really, really like their relationship. 
I mean, we were joking earlier on about Batman, and this is very much, uh, okay, well, is this the Alfred character? And to a degree, yes. But also, to a degree, this is someone who sees the emotional heart of the main character in a way that nobody else gets to. And I think it's I think it's incredibly well done. And I think she is amazing in this. So she can only possibly be in the film for, what, this scene? Uh, the scene with I'm running out of excuses, and uh, the, the scene immediately afterwards, if you say anyone I love you, and then Russell Nash dies tonight. and that's So she can't be in it for longer than two minutes. But I think she's absolutely brilliant. This is a wonderful cameo. Did you guys know much about Sheila Gish outside of this film? No, but I was wondering, should we save that for the next episode because that's when she has her main scene with him? Oh, go on then. Should we talk about it then? Yes, absolutely. What do you reckon, Rob? Yeah, let's save that for the next scene. Um, okay, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, to your point, Ian, everything that you just said. <laughs> I've I got in my notes and we'll talk about it in the next scene, just how she conveys so much with so little screen time. And it has to be said, not yeah amazing dialogue it's it's dialogue there to keep the story moving as much as it is to characterize her but uh, but there are certain things that she does with it that are absolutely brilliant um oh the cut the cutaways when she's smiling the, the two of them oddly flirting and she's not like i'm not in on the joke she totally understands what's going on and she's got a genuine sort of like smile of She's enjoying the moment as much as uh, the audience are. I think it's it's really lovely. Was that the bit when um yeah when Connor is laying on the charm with Brenda? <laughs> it's an odd kind of charm as well, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> an odd kind of charm. Yes. He puts his hand on her and leads her away, and then asks for the cooking dinner. But he leads her away to like three feet away. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's like, is this one of those things that happens in a Shakespeare play where no one else can hear what's going on now because they've they've gone to stage left? Yes, um, we'll stand behind the arbor. Yeah. I, th- I think it's notable that this is probably one of the relatively few scenes in the film where people are having a direct, quote-unquote, normal conversation. <laughs> are they? <laughs> Do you cook? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, could you let us know about that, Rob? Because I was watching it thinking, I love the way that the scenes with Brenda and... Russell Nash. Uh, just how did we get from there to there? How is what is the flow of this? Um, but Rob, what's the normal conversation aspect about this that you like? 18th century silver. Is that what you're always talking about? Yeah. <laughs> when I say normal, I guess it's just two people face to face in a well then contemporary space. Yeah. Having what would under other circumstances be a normal conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is the first time for a while since we've had a conversation that isn't about the fantasy element of this directly. Well, have we had any conversations in the present day that aren't either Connor being interrogated by the police or that weird encounter at the bar or... Like, this is kind of the first of it's just people in a room talking to each other in a way that I say, you know, again, normal is very much an in inverted commas. You know, they could be they they could be talking about the weather. Normal by Highlander standards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think normal by Highlander standards is. I also love the fact that Lambert tilts his head. He's got he's got that kind of. It's almost like one of his mannerisms from Tarzan <laughs> when he's looking at her and he tilts his head like he's trying to get her into focus. <laughs> there is some love music work there, isn't it? I, I really like the line. Um... I want some advice. Are you the kind of person to take advice? I'd like some advice. Are you the kind of woman who takes advice? That depends. 
it's like, that's such a great line. But also the way that he's dressed, actually all the outfits in these are very 80s outfits, aren't they? I really like his, his strange suit with the belt behind the back, but he's also wearing a just an off pink shirt. And you just look at it and go, actually, that matches his eyes. He does not look healthy. He does not have healthy eyes. <laughs> and then there's this wonderful sort of like 80s yuppie blouse that Rachel's wearing, this like um, toothpaste stripe top that she's got on. It feels, yeah, I think it's the natural daylight as well. Have had many scenes in the present day that are set during daylight. There's the one with um, when it has the dissolve through to the Mona Lisa billboard. Ah, That's yes. an early morning. But, but you're right, this is much more of like a kind of yeah, late morning, quite flat lighting. It does look very normal compared to what we've just had and even what we've had mm. in the film up to this point. Um, and Ian, the reason you're on is because you just say what my notes are, which is great because I don't have to say it. <laughs> there is some great dressing going on here. Yeah, yeah. that that jacket that he's wearing, that kind of like your know, woolen suit jacket. Oh, it's really <laughs> that, nice, isn't it? Yeah. And also, let's not forget that Brenda is wearing quite the shoulder pads. <laughs> she is that that is a power dressing outfit that she's got with that jacket that she's wearing. It's like that's how you establish you're not back in the past anymore. It's like I suspect we're back in the eighties. Yes, it's like everyone's <laughs> just walked off of a Russell Mulcahy video, mm. and um, now we're going to do this bit. Are we forgetting Rachel's candy stripe, <laughs> like her kind of red and white pie pink? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's that toothpaste stripe. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's really striking. In fact, in the next scene, I you suddenly wearing she's wearing another candy stripe, except it's kind of like this weird navy blue. It's like did she change halfway through the day? It's amazing. But um, yeah, the outfits are terrific. The set is really nice as well. And there's another Batman reference, I think. Uh, where um, do you remember in the animated series the um, Bruce Wayne's living room? No. There's no there's no worldly reason why you should. <laughs> but it, one of the uh, backdrop cells for uh, the Wayne Manor. Uh, set in Batman animated series was this enormous bay window at the back with this giant staircase leading down and there there was two armchairs and you often had scenes that were set there and there's an enormous statue in that set of an angel with these huge wings that just Uh. pointing straight up in a curve and they're either one, they're right there, right either side of the um, either side of the doorway in uh, Nash's antique shop. It's like I know those statues. It's a really, it's, kind of, it's a complete coincidence. But you just look at it, going, yeah, that's a Wayne Manor statue if ever I've seen one. <laughs> so Anton First, who was the production designer for Batman '89, he saw that, put it in, and then the animated series saw. It. Is that what you're saying, Ian? That's definitely what happened. <laughs> That's definitely what happened, absolutely. And Rantle first burnt all his notes, but they were not before they were seen by Bruce Tim or whoever the hell yeah. did those background shots. <laughs> well, uh, the production designer on Highlander was Alan Cameron. Among other things, he's done The Da Vinci Code. Uh, he did Starship Troopers. He did um, 1984, the version of 1984 that half the people in this film seem to have been involved in. Oh, okay. Van Helsing, The Mummy, Shanghai Nights. Who, was it? Who else is it that did The Mummy? Because, because there's definitely Showgirls, yeah, so he was in, he also worked a lot with Verhoeven. I need to go back and listen to the first episode we recorded because there are definitely some other Highlander alums who worked with Verhoeven and I think at least one who did The Mummy. And Van Helsing, so he's clearly in with Stephen Summers. Yeah, that's right. Um, also, Russell Mulcahy did, did his own version of The Mummy as well, didn't he? That wasn't quite as, as big as the official version of The Mummy. Oh, I didn't know that. Was it not called Legend of the Mummy? Was that one that he did, or am I confusing him with someone else? Was this Legend... Uh, Le- Legend of the Mummy was by Jeffrey Obrow. Obrow? Obrow. I'm going to say Obrow, even though it's just spelled O-B-R-O-W, 
without any apostrophe. So sorry, he did the um, tale of the mummy. Tale of the mummy. Okay. In 1998, that when I worked for Sky Movies many years ago, we had that movie, and I think that some people thought that it was the mummy because it did amazingly well for the first couple of showings we had because it was released. <laughs> it was 1998, but we we got it in 2000, so just after The Mummy, and it was like, oh, I think people might have tuned in and watched it by accident. Um, it is... We're going to get letters. Yeah, we're going to get letters. <laughs> it is a serviceable film. It is not quite as good as Highlander, I seem to remember. I think I'm the only person in the world who didn't enjoy that Mummy movie either. No, no, there's two of us, and our numbers are growing. <laughs> the Brendan Fraser mummy film was like, oh, this is our new Indiana Jones, this? Ooh. Um, is there anything you need to say? I mean, it is it is a weird conversation that they have, though, isn't it? Because it's like, she seems very easily deflected by him, because she... Is this the first time that she has seen who she thinks is Russell Nash since they were attacked by the Kurgan? Yes. Yeah. You think you kind of stick to that point. <laughs> <laughs> These are odd scenes though, aren't they? They're always kind of like, the purpose of this scene is to set up their date. That's all. Um, it's like the next scene where um, you've got the, the policeman. It's like the only purpose of this is to know that the policemen know that uh, they're going to have a date. It's kind of like perfunctory. After the 20 minutes of, you know, rollicking charisma uh, back in the Highlands with uh, Ramirez and Heather, there's a part of this that's almost like, okay, now we're arranging the pieces for the final act, you know. So it is kind of like... Oh, it is. It, uh, just in terms of, yeah, this is like a transition scene, really. Yes. But heavens, does it feel like it? Because it's like, well, yes, I know that you're setting up or you're bringing in, like, yeah, the romance element now. And a lot of that is sold from Rachel's smile that she gives them at the end of the scene. Mm. But surely Brenda would have a few more questions about the guy that attacked them. And the fact that she just is immediately deflected by him saying why don't you invite me around for dinner? It's like, and we'll talk about that guy that tried to kill us, right? <laughs> Can I show you something in 18th century silver? It's not why I came here, and you know it. You'll crop up in conversation, but also from the point of view of the viewer, especially the first time viewer, literally the last scene was our, our flashback um, heroine apparently being killed. It's like, it's a massive 180 degree turn from something terrible has just happened to now we're doing screwball comedy. Yeah, it's interesting that. I I seem to, and I might be misremembering, but I never thought that Heather had been killed the first time I saw it. I thought it was going to be a case that she was going to be kidnapped. Ah. Uh, I don't know why. I just thought, maybe I thought, well, she's just such a lovely character that I can't handle the fact that she might be killed. So, but I just thought that the Kurgan would have kidnapped her um, to get Connor. Whereas it turns out that he didn't do that. He just left <laughs> after of course, raping Heather. Um, but he didn't stick around, and uh, which is, and we've talked about that on the previous episode as being quite a big plot hole. But but then there was um, Cameron who had a really good theory about that. About the, um, the fact that the Kurgan left Heather and didn't wait for Connor because it was like, well, he wanted Connor to hurt, basically, to be in pain. And... Uh, to see the love of his life live out this natural life. And you would presume that he would find out yeah. that she'd been raped by the Kurgan. But of course, he doesn't find out until hundreds of years later. But but that was like a weapon as well, just to leave them there and to leave her to get old, which I thought was a very nice reading of it. And, and yeah, this hadn't occurred to me before. 
Yeah, so the Kurgan, yeah, he's clearly got a, um, if that's the case, a, a penchant for quite sophisticated sadism that's not necessarily borne out by his uh, demeanour in other regards. Well, no, I think it just, it, I think it's exactly as you say. That's, it's, well, it's been a result for Kurgan because he's, he's taken Ramirez off the table and also shattered McLeod. And it's like there's, um, I, I, I get the sense. I, I really like the fact that you got later bit on uh, where they meet in the church, and it's obviously the first time that they've met since Ramirez was killed and and Heather was raped. And it's like hundreds of years have gone by, you, and it's the first time you've met. Nice to see you, Kurgan. Who cuts your hair? These people aren't on vendettas. They're just going through their weird, lazy parabolas through life, through the centuries, just happening to intersect with one another every couple of hundred years or so. It's a different kind of place, isn't it? It's it's not like, and suddenly I go into revenge mode. It's it's just like, yeah, and then just time passed. It's it's really quite a nice mood. Yeah. So do you mean that it's the first time they met where they weren't in combat? No, it's the first time they meet since... Um... Well, no, because they have that meeting earlier, don't they, when they... Oh, well, that, render, yeah. When they tried to... Yeah, sure. Nice to see you again, McLeod. Nice to see you that's an interesting notion that is, yeah, the first time the Connor sees the Kurgan since that sequence in the Highlands, that time in the alley when he gets ambushed with Brenda. It's like, that could be like, wow, it's been a long time for Sam. I just think it's nice he remembers him. You know, that's always great, isn't it? When you meet up with somebody years later and, you know, you still you still have that immediate rapport. You wouldn't forget that face. <laughs> what, the uh, the six foot four maniac who, who uh, killed you centuries before? Yeah, indeed. Still not over that. But um, <laughs> so is there anything else to say about the scene with Rachel in the shop before we move on to the most crucial scene in the entire film? Well, I think, yeah, I think as, as Ian was saying earlier, the fact that Connor invites himself round for dinner with the with the line, do you cook? <laughs> well, the 18th century man and, the, and uh, the 1980s man. Common. Oh, it is so he is so sexist in this. Leading her by the arm, do you cook? I thought we might have dinner. <laughs> <It's>... Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. You can take the man out of the 18th century, but so yeah, this scene with the cops. Oh, this this is yeah, this is the first lazy scene. This, this is the first scene that serves no purpose. I mean, I admire the fact he's not wearing shoes, and I admire the fact that they you know they're they're making the big point of eating Cheetos and reading Headhunter Stalks New York New York Post headlines. But it's like, what is this in here? It is almost like it's just to put an arbitrary break to to hide the ellipsis between the two scenes. I think it is. I think that's the... So who's not wearing shoes for the benefit of the audience? And actually, who are the cops in this? <laughs> I can't even remember their names. Moran is from Naked Gun, Yes, right? he's Alan yes. North. Alan North. And so it's Bedsoe. Bedsoe is sitting there with his, his shoes off, which is the most, the most repellent thing in the world, <laughs> eating his Cheetos while with te- having refused to wear shoes, like a common fishwife. Uh... Well, I was going to say, actually, um, I think one of the reasons for this scene could be so that Doritos could get their sponsorship in somewhere. <laughs> Do you think they want that kind of... They were hoping that Christopher Lambert would be eating the Doritos. That's right. And I was going to say, it clearly hasn't worked because you thought they were Cheetos. And it's like, I knew we weren't showing enough of the name on the packet. Are they Doritos? They are Doritos, yeah. Um, I'm never eating Doritos again. No, I've said it. <laughs> yeah. But it really is one of those scenes where it's like, yes. It, so you see uh, the headhunter headline on the newspaper that then like yeah, ties into the serial killer subplot in this film that ultimately is kind of dropped along with the policeman subplot. <laughs> and 
they're talking about something that they never really returned to the fact that our little Brenda has been seen going into Nash's shop. Um, so I'm standing there, and there's Brenda, our little Brenda. You sure it was Brenda? She was in Nash's shop, she was talking to him. But I think it really is just there so that it doesn't seem awkward to have to go from that scene into the scene with Rachel because it's kind of the same space. They just put mm. this scene in the middle of it. It's like, I imagine this scene lived in a few other places or might have even been dropped at one point and they thought, no, it just doesn't flow very well if we just continue from that to that. Well, no, that's the strange thing, though. That scene can only exist in that spot, can't it? Because it immediately got the date scene. So, well, yeah, yeah maybe. And how how did Bedso see her? Buying shoes next door. Well, that's, yeah, because you get the... We get the impression that they're staking Nash out. But to what end? Because he's not a suspect. It's like yeah. he hasn't been... It's like... I love the way that the cop subplot in this film hits all the beats of what you would expect from an 80s movie but adds no relevance to the plot and gets dropped before the climax and yeah. is never returned to um so we just have to acknowledge that there are police here but we'll give them some things to do but ultimately this is we just don't care about this bit of it so um well this isn't it's because it's like okay well we need the police to ground it in some sense of 1980s action movie drama mm. don't we it's kind of like we have to be there because it's like this this imminent threat and it needs to be investigated but it it's almost like this tiny micro scene is there only to highlight how little interest we have in the policeman which is a courageous filmmaking decision, really. I really, I really like the scene when the, the survivalist is telling his story to the cops. And that's a really striking scene. That's excellent. And that's when the policemen realise they're completely out of their depth and you never, ever see them again. They kind of like, go, right, well, we're just going to ignore this, aren't we? <laughs> but this is almost like we're just forgetting. We want to forget that the police are even characters in this. So much so that the, um, you know, the costume dresser has forgotten to <laughs> put shoes on bedside. But that's so. <laughs> that's the thing is that also that where they are looks like could even be just the actor's green room for that set. <laughs> it's like you don't get any establishing <laughs> shot of the police station. It just cuts to like what looks like a very small room uh, with blank walls. And I say this could be where like yeah, Doritos have put their sponsorship, but it's like. Maybe they didn't even sponsor it. Maybe John Polito was just eating his lunch when they recorded this <laughs> bit and said, well, I want to, I'm hungry, so I'm going to eat my lunch while we do this. I think that's what Bedso would do anyway. And I'm not going to put my shoes on because my feet hurt. I feel like Bedso wouldn't wear shoes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we think that Alan North was, was naturally just smoking a cigar at that point. He's just truculently smoking a cigar. I'd say, um, this is reinforcing for me, though, that I'm, I now want to see a version of Batman where it's Connor. And we obviously have Moran as some not quite as personable Commissioner Gordon. Yes. <laughs> no, Moran is obviously playing um, Knox. Oh, yeah, yeah. What about Bedso then? <laughs> no, Bedso would be, um, oh, what's his name? The the really schlubby one from Batman Begins who's on the take. Oh, he's Flash. Flash, yes. Um, <laughs> so, so this film would be called Blind as a Batman. No, nope, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> thought that had wings or legs but this one you'll get it in retake <laughs> we can only have one joke the expense of christopher lambert's eyesight per episode <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> otherwise it just feels like bullying <laughs> i can sit through an awful lot of scenes of idiots eating doritos or cheetos if it means that we lay the foundation for the what does incompetent mean scene coming up it's like okay if that's what we had to go through in order to validate 
the narrative purpose for the what does baffle me <laughs> then I, i'm totally on board for it because that scene is just just perfect what are you talking about you know cubs can read <laughs> so good well, given that in the uh, most recent scene with Moran and Brenda, Ian, you posted a theory by which Moran may have feelings for her. How do you think he feels at, at hearing the news that she may be stepping out with Connor, with Russell Nash? Oh, as long as he keeps his, as long as he keeps his shoes on, that's the important thing. <laughs> and one foot on the ground <laughs> at all times. Exactly. As long as he doesn't light anybody else's cigar. Yeah, because he does look like in. Yeah, because he does drop the newspaper, doesn't he? When Bedsoe says, "Our oh, little Brenda." <laughs> God damn Euro trash. I believe it's pronounced Euro trash, but uh, that's why I'm... Euro trash, exactly. <laughs> well, to, um, it will surprise you both, not at all, that Russell Mulcahy doesn't have anything to say about this particular scene or the previous one on the audio commentary. <laughs> what, he just, he just doesn't say anything? He doesn't say anything until in this scene he actually starts talking about the next scene. Um, so he's clearly much more interested in that, because it's a much more interesting scene. But uh, yeah, most of the scene with... Um, render in the shop does play out at just a quieter volume because you're just waiting for him to say something and it's like i'm not too surprised though um well that's what's so strange about that scene it's like that whole point of that scene is should we meet up in a little bit later to talk about this <laughs> it's like, well, why don't we talk about it now it's like no yeah, that's right. let's meet later it's like wow that's a that's a great way to put padding in it's mm. it's almost like you can see the purpose of this scene is to introduce Rachel, to introduce Rachel's perspective on the relationship, yeah. which is like, that's, that's brilliant. That's really lovely. But um, it does mean you've got a couple of weird stepping stones to, to cross, having just had this wonderful montage in the past. And just one other point about that, I was quite, well, not surprised, but I wondered if they considered doing a transition out of the past using the fish tank that is audacious as the one that got them into the past with that split lens effect where you seem to be rising up and then it's like a different space you're in um because this one is like just a pan up basically mm -hmm. and it's like oh okay i wonder if they thought yes we need to do that no we haven't got time to do that so therefore we're just going to do a cut and hope that people get the fact that this is coming out of the fish tank now but anyway isn't that just because it's such a traumatic scene cut away from it could be yeah um yeah it would feel like it would feel like it's aligning it slightly to have it come out of the fish tank again yeah. You could transition out of that. It might not work if it was to look like it was on the water level, but um, they could have done that. They could have found a way. <laughs> That's the hill I'm dying on. <laughs> lazy, lazy Russell Mulcahy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And in conclusion, he was a hack. <laughs> in conclusion, the film is worthless. Wrap it up, boys. We're going home. Exactly. <laughs> not a 50 minutes. Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, once again, we have a rich history of you bringing me on to talk about two utterly perfunctory scenes. Excellent. Thank you, boys. Well, we need somebody that we can that we need somebody that we know who can do. Uh, nice. Go on. Get it out of your system. We need Just somebody. You're nearly there. One more try. One we need somebody try. we know who can do the heavy lifting. <laughs> there we go. Well done. And we'll also <laughs> bear the heavy lifting with good grace. <laughs> Oh, really? I was between good grace. Okay, fair <laughs> Well, oh, actually, I'll say one thing. One thing I've learned, I've, I've reminded myself while doing a bit of research, finally, around these films, is that in the third film, obviously, it's a different love interest from um, Brenda, and because Brenda has been killed in a car accident. And in that film, there's also a flashback to another mortal whom he had a relationship with during, I think, the French Revolution, so it makes a complete nonsense of this scene, because this scene very much implies that he hasn't been with anybody since Heather. Whereas 
Whereas, and the third, uh, yeah, the third film then goes, actually, he was with at least one person. And then when Heather died, he immediately got over it and shacked up with someone else. He hasn't been with anyone since Heather. No, he hasn't. That's the whole point of the... <laughs> and then, well, we'll talk about more, this is more in the next episode. And then Rachel gets killed at the start of Endgame. So... What? Yeah. Rachel gets killed at the start of Highlander Endgame. Yeah, it's... Wow. Oh, Jesus. The 90s just didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> But one point there, Rob, that you said about um, the fact that Brenda gets killed in a car accident. Well, <laughs> she might do in the most recent version of Highlander 2 that you watched. <laughs> the one that I watched <laughs> uh, is the near two-hour version. It's almost as long as this film, and she dies from radiation oh. sickness from the sun. Um <laughs> And it's played by a different actress who's got lots of bandages on her face. And it's equally shit. (laughs) There is no saving that film. Um, But we will do an episode on Highlander 2, The Quickening. (laughs) It's a fun one to talk about because, my God, is that not Highlander, the 1986 classic movie. It's also quite quite an ingenious part about this film. Um, She actually says we're in 1985, doesn't she? It's like very rare for a film to actually place itself in a moment in time. When's that moment that she says it? I mean, she's talking about, uh, what can you tell me about Seven Foot Maniac hacking away with Broadsword in New York City, 1985? What can you tell me about a seven foot lunatic hacking away with a broadsword at one o'clock in the morning, New York City, 1985? It's like, that is unusual. You do not see that very often. Yeah, yeah, indeed. (laughs) I'll let that hang there. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, boys, you do this for a living. Luckily, through the power of editing, this will all flow seamlessly. (laughs) I intend to leave a massive pause there when I edit it for comedic effect. I'm <laughs> not sure comedic means what you think it means. <laughs> I do not think you understand that word. Yes, it's... Uh... Yeah. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, is there anything else to uh, talk about in this scene? Um, no, I, I, don't, I think they barely qualify as scenes. They're very fun. And it is a strange jarring effect after the uh, murder of Ramirez and the possible murder of Heather. It's just, uh, yeah, I think this one more draft could have elided quite a lot easier. Yes, absolutely. But we've still managed to squeeze 50 unedited minutes out of it. <laughs> 50 unedited I swear to God, if this comes in at longer than 20 minutes, <laughs> I'm very cross with you. Oh, Ian, they're, they're all unedited minutes. We haven't even alluded to any Simpsons quotations, so I don't see how you can pad it out with that. <laughs> I mean, do you want to go for one now? Challenge accepted. <laughs> Take whatever gauntlet you want to throw down. Although, unfortunately, sadly, I wasn't able to find a clip of that moment of um, either truth accepted or falsehood from Nightmare. <laughs> Which is really surprising, because you think that would just be floating around YouTube anyway. I spent a solid 20 minutes looking for it. I watched a bunch <laughs> of the compilations to see if they had if they had it in there. It's, you know... Oh, my God. So this is what people who don't have children do, Ian. <laughs> This is how we fill our days. <laughs> Sweet Jiminy Christmas. Well, I applaud you, and you keep pursuing that path. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be. Yes, it'll all pay off. <laughs> Shall we wrap it up? <laughs> um, yes. Okay. In which case, um, thank you very much, Ian, for uh, for coming on. And oh, I'm... Believe me, no thanks necessary. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm glad to say you'll be joining us for the next episode. As long as something happens in the next scene. <laughs> I'm sure we can rustle something up. Ah, very good. <laughs> and 
Mr. Daniel, thank you very much. <laughs> it's always ace to be here. And Ian, if we were looking for you online, where might we find you? Um, I have a website at uh, mrcarapus.co.uk. And Mr. Daniel. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, Ian, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? I never tweet, no. Fair enough. Well, you you tweeted something about your website that was a piece that you'd written that I thought was very good, about Tori Amos. Oh, did you read it? Yeah. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah, it was good. Oh, that's very kind of you. See, I'm. this is what you're supposed to do, Ian. You're supposed to say, <laughs> you can find me here because then people will then read the stuff from your wonderful website. <laughs> um, bless your heart. I always find that uh, being really, really condescending and uh, berating the guests gets them thrilled to come back for the next episode. <laughs> First you batter them with 52 minutes of discourse on two completely incidental scenes. Then you hit them up with some sweet, sweet condescension. Yes. <laughs> well, I would suggest that if you want to follow Ian on Twitter, you can do at Mr. Carapus, which is M-R Carapus. So C-A-R, no, C-A-R-A-P-A-C-E. See, Ian, seamless. I like you. I like how you initially spelled out the part of it that most people would know how to spell. Well, the right thing is that it's M I S T E R. <laughs> anyway, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, and how could you not after this? Um, I am at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at filmstories.co.uk and lovehorror.co.uk and electric-shadows.com. And we also do another podcast called the Movie Robcast. And you can listen to that wherever you are listening to this. And you can follow that on Twitter at MovieRobCast. Excellent. And yeah, if you want to follow me online, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter, if you are so inclined, at McLeod Time. Uh, and if you want to contact us, uh, you can send us an email. You know, drop us a line about any Highlander-related anecdotes you might have, or if you fancy guesting on the pod. And, you know, after having heard tonight's episode, I, I have no doubt you will. Um, and, well, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, all that's left to say is... Ian, would you take us out with a rousing rendition of Another Time My Cloud? <laughs> I am not going to say another time, McLeod. Too late! Damn it! <laughs> Curse your editing fingers. <laughs> <laughs> another time, McLeod!